Welcome to the SOAR podcast with Dr. Stephanie. I am a life coach and a physician, and I'm here to use my voice to help sisters overcome and rise. I get to do this by discussing relevant topics and struggles that we all encounter in our lives with a focus on how we can overcome them by transforming our limiting beliefs into living our best lives. Today's topic is carrying the weight of generational trauma. Just like we can pass down generational curses, generational blessings, and generational wealth, we can also pass down generational trauma. That sounds like something that makes sense, but what does it actually mean? And how do we know if this is something that might be affecting us and we aren't even aware of it? Could we be walking around with trauma from our ancestors? Our history as black people in America tells us that this is very possible. So we will talk more about what generational trauma is, what the symptoms are, and how do we heal from it as soon as I welcome my guest onto the show in just a minute. Welcome back to the SOAR podcast. I'm here with our special guest, Dr. Jessica Smedley, and I'd like to go ahead and introduce her and then we will get into our interview for our topic of the day. Dr. Jessica Smedley is a proud native of, of Vallejo, California. She completed her Bachelor of Arts in Counseling and Psychology at the University of San Francisco. She then went on to complete her doctoral degree in Clinical Psychological Seminary in Pasadena, where she also completed two additional masters. She is currently licensed and practicing in Washington, D.C. She enjoys working with people who are striving to heal from symptoms of trauma, anxiety, and depression and she strongly emphasizes the importance of self-care. Welcome, Dr. Smedley. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me and for that welcome. You are so welcome. Uh, I've been looking forward to this interview, and I'm so excited. I feel like we could probably do several interviews because I have so many questions to ask you. <laughs> <laughs> but yes. one of the topics that really jumped out at me when I was reading your blog um, was the the weight of generational trauma because I, I definitely feel that as black people we have generational trauma but I don't really know how to put it into words and I've never really been able to kind of wrap my brain around the concept so can you please explain what generational trauma is yes absolutely um, so first I think it would be helpful to first define trauma and how we think about that mm -hmm. uh, so clinically you think about trauma as any perceived life-threatening event or a threat to our general well-being. So it can be physical, psychological, or emotional in nature. Mm -hmm. um, it can look like danger, violence, um, or any sort of uh, threat or limitation in that way. And it limits our ability to cope. It causes us to feel hopeless yeah. um, and gives us a general sense of not being in control. Mm. So some common examples of that are, um, of course, you know, physical, sexual abuse, experiences of other types of violence, war, um, or even being in a car. Yeah. That can be a trauma, too. I feel like this pandemic is traumatic. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that is sadly a timely example. It absolutely is because we just had to stop our lives as what we once knew while also worrying about um, can we catch this virus and what are the unknowns and can we yeah. see our family members again? And um, Absolutely. So when we add the 
generational context to trauma, I think it starts with our history. Um, and so if we go back 400 plus years, it starts with us being captured in West Africa, the Middle Passage. Um, and then eventually the abolitionist movement and then the civil war, the Jim Crow era, segregation, mass incarceration. Right. Um, the three strikes law, police brutality. And so that informs the way that we navigate society. Uh, and it becomes generational because it also informs the way that black people parent their children. Mm, Okay. Parenting styles, uh, black parents often talk about having to parent on defense and to teach mm. the child to be on defense. So yes, you yeah. are beautiful. Yes, you are brilliant. But you also have to be safe because the world, sadly, will not keep you safe. Yeah, that makes sense. I, f- I feel like I have a, a grasp of it now. And, and it also rings very true. Um, true for me as a parent and true for uh, many other parents I know. Sure. As I was reading your blog post on generational trauma, Mm -hmm. one of the things that stood out for me was how generational trauma can manifest as perfectionism. Because for myself and for other black women that I coach, perfectionism is one of the things that keeps coming up time and time again Mm -hmm. and often stands in the way of us really showing up the way we want to in the world. So I'm just curious to hear how generational trauma can lead to perfectionism. Sure. So um, as I mentioned earlier, one of the symptoms of trauma that we often don't think about um, is a general sense of anxiety Mm. and that anxiety manifests in us needing to control everything. Okay. And perfectionism is a mechanism of control. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> so, so it's about overcompensating um, for that sense of loss or inadequacy um, because of our pain, because of the lack of control that we have over the traumatic situations over our lives. Um, so if you think about a cultural context, it's the messages of you have to work twice as hard just to be as good or take those yes. extra steps to stand out so because you have to prove yourself. And then I also think about how perfectionism sort of fills the voids of insecurities. So if we have any insecurities from various uh, instances of trauma, because trauma also impacts our sense of self, mm-hmm. that perfectionism is also a way to overcompensate for that. Yeah. Yeah, that makes that makes so much sense uh, on both levels as a way to kind of overcompensate to the experience of trauma and also as a way to kind of, you know, cope with that loss. Uh, So thanks. Thanks for explaining that, that I had an aha moment there as you were speaking. Another one of the things that I really enjoyed from reading your blog post was as you were describing generational trauma, you used the life of a fictional character, Terrence. And I felt like he was real because I felt like the things that you described about him, that I had known somebody with many of those things and know many people with some of the some of the experiences that he was going through. So uh, kudos on writing like the perfect fictional character. Uh-huh. Thanks. <laughs> and, and one of the things you described is this young man entering college 
and was already burnt out. Mm -hmm. So I just wanted to hear a little bit more about how generational trauma can cause burnout at such a young age. Absolutely. Sadly, I think that many of us either know a Terrence or have related to a part of his life. Um, mm-hmm. you know, we see it all the time. And so in his case, um, it's it's this theme, and I see it in, in therapy a lot too, of they've already lived a whole life before they, mm-hmm. because they've had to show up emotionally for the parent or step in and help to raise siblings and to learn yeah. how to cook and and manage households or hear too much adult information um, because parents haven't dealt with their trauma or right. And so it, it gets often unintentionally, of course, displaced onto the oldest sibling or uh, whatever the role is of the child in the house. And that limits the amount of emotional support. Um, they may not get the nurturing that they deserve. Uh, and ultimately aren't able to experience their full childhood for what it is. Yeah, that that definitely uh, resonates with me. I can think of just growing up and many of my friends who had to raise younger siblings. Mm-hmm. And, and I remember one of the things that my husband and I as parents, mm-hmm. we both were like, we want them to have a childhood. Mm-hmm. We want our children to not have to worry about things that, you know, adults have to worry about. We just want them to experience their childhood. And they and they are experiencing it to the nth degree. <laughs> <laughs> That's a blessing though. That is a blessing. It is. It it is a blessing. I know one time I was talking to my life coach about how I, I had taken them somewhere and we were uh, going to like a cultural event. Mm-hmm. And in my mind, and I think they were maybe 10 and nine. And in my mind, there was a certain way that they were supposed to behave. They were supposed to be very appreciative and just kind of have this level of decorum. And they were running all over the place. And, and she was like, well, isn't it amazing that they feel so comfortable and so secure mm-hmm. with you that they're able to just be free and be themselves? Yes. And I was like, yeah, I just, I never, I, I don't remember feeling that, that mm-hmm. sense of freedom as a child, but I've been able to give it to them. So that that is a blessing. And that's a powerful shift because if you think about our parents or our, their their parents, they parented from a di- very different perspective of this is how mm-hmm. you have to act. This is how you have to stay in line. You cannot yep. make these white folks mad, right? Exactly. Exactly. You and your husband have this intentional dialogue in this, you know, generation. And to be able to give them that is a beautiful thing. Yeah. Yeah. Now I'm able to kind of put it into context as, as I'm learning more about generational trauma. Sure. I'm learning a lot from you because I also learned another new term, which is emotionally constipated. Mm. And maybe that really stood out to me because as a physician, you know, I deal with that uh, physical part yes. of it. And uh, so, so I'm like, oh, you can be emotionally constipated, too. And, it, and it's very descriptive. But I'd love for you to give some examples of how emotional constipation might present in one's behavior. Sure. So the first thing that pops in my mind, you know, as you ask this question, is that it may not show up <laughs> because it's somebody oh. who's going through life on autopilot. It's somebody who's numb or shut down, emotionally unavailable. It might be the person who shows up and is a functional person, but doesn't really solve 
resolve conflict or doesn't really engage mm-hmm. in challenging conversations or avoids, you know, life problems. They may yes. not have a wide variety of emotional vocabulary. So they might only stick to mm-hmm. it at all sad, mad, happy. Or mm-hmm. it's frustrated or hurt or, you know, elated or <laughs> right. confused. <laughs> right. So I think it's that, that um, presentation of, of how they might show up. That's a great, a great point that, you know, it may not show up. And I've also noticed that some people and, and I don't know if this falls into the category of emotionally constipated, but some people can express like one spectrum of emotions. They can express joy. They can express mm-hmm. love, but they're not able able to verbally express anger. If you bring up that it seems like you might be angry, they deny, I'm not angry, I'm not upset. Mm-hmm. And they're visibly angry, but they can't express that spectrum of emotions. Would that fall into emotionally constipated? I think so, because I think it's completely, it's a blockage, right? So medically, I'm sure you see yeah. it's a blockage, but it's also an emotional blockage because you're only tied mm-hmm. into that one um, domain of your well-being uh, of course, there are different reasons as to why someone might present that way, but I think that it is a limited awareness or self-awareness of how mm-hmm. somebody is emoting or choosing not to. Exactly. Exactly. It's a it's a blockage. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you've got your work cut out for you in terms of how <laughs> helping people get past these blockages. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> <laughs> so your blog post is called Dr. Jess on Black Stress, mm-hmm. which is a phenomenal name. And so when when I read that and I hear black stress, mm-hmm. what comes to mind is sort of like, what is the difference between black stress and stress in general? Mm-hmm. I have an idea of what it is, but I would love to hear you talk a little bit about that. Sure. So I started the blog recently as a response to the current social unrest and then just a way to even process Mm -hmm. and channel my energy in a very intentional way. I personally find writing very therapeutic, but also educating our people on us and how we're doing and our mental health. So I specifically chose and to intentionally call it black stress because in addition to oh financial stressors or work stressors or school stressors, we have unique stress that comes along with our experiences of being black in America. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to intentionally create a space to um, highlight some of those areas and to give voice and attention to our experiences of racism or the stressors that come with navigating white spaces and the fatigue that comes along with that. Yes. The reality of the ways that we experience disparities in our lives, whether it's healthcare or financial or um, home buying, just, you know, all domains of life are impacted, unfortunately, by the presence of um, racism. And so I just really wanted to be intentional and give voice to that. That is wonderful that you it's wonderful that you were able to channel some of your energy that way and give voice to that for us as black people to have that space to be able to process and to see, oh, yeah, it's not just me. This is kind of a, a community wide thing. And The other thing that occurs to me is that it's also powerful to give space to other people because 
I know right now with the racial unrest, you know, most black people are too tired to explain to other people what it's like, what it's just tiring. It's exhausting. You know, we already have to feel it and live through it. And then to have to re-traumatize ourselves by sort of explaining those situations to others, it's just too much right now. Even well-meaning, you know, people who are culturally competent, I know I had a conversation with a friend and I was explaining how I got into a conversation with someone else who was not culturally competent and, um, and she was saying, well, I feel like I'm walking on eggshells with you in this conversation. And I said, these conversations are not going to be comfortable. That's okay. Mm-hmm. I said, and the only difference between you is that I always feel like I'm walking on uh-huh. eggshells. It's not just in this conversation with yeah. you. And when I shared that with my friend, she was like, is that really true? And I said, yes, that's true. I said, you know, <laughs> I, in, in most situations, sort of outside of my home, my community, my friends, you know, I do feel a sense of walking on eggshells and having to kind of read the room, figure out what to say, how much to say, how to say it. It's exhausting. It is. And and one of the blind spots that is even more exhausting is that once you do give light, if you choose to, uh, of your experience, then it becomes... Um, you might become victim to then taking care of them because of their anxiety, their guilt, their discomfort. (laughs) So it requires you to be really, really, really intentional and have good boundaries should you choose to engage in that dialogue. Absolutely. That's a, that's another great point that I didn't even think about. Cause I'm like, I'm tired. I'm not even going to go there, but <laughs> Which is that's great. don't. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. <laughs> so now that we understand what gen- generational trauma is, it's important for us to talk about how to overcome it. You know, this Thor is sisters overcoming and rising. And so that's what we do on this show. And I noticed that you recommended therapy with a black professional or culturally competent non-black professional as a way to learn how to lay down the generational trauma that many of us carry. So some people have said, and even on one of my previous shows, one of the comments that I got was, you know, why does it have to be a black therapist? Any any therapy is better than no therapy. So I'm going to ask you that question. Why is it important to seek out a black therapist or a humble, culturally competent therapist? Absolutely. Okay. Let's start with any therapy is better than no therapy. Do I agree Mm -hmm. with that generally? Sure. Because therapy is still a space that once you decide it's safe, it's not up to the therapist to make it safe. It's up to you. You Mm -hmm. can gain information about mental health. You can gain information about coping skills. You can process general human experiences like grief or, you know, certain general stressors. But because we are black first, that is always going to come up at some point in the session Mm -hmm. because of some Mm -hmm. experience about discrimination or because of some generational family history or you know, some interaction that happened at work or whatever it is, it's it's part of your identity. Mm-hmm. And so while not all black therapists are, of course, experts in this area, um, that's why I added that caveat of a culturally, I'm going to call it a culturally humble therapist, because I think competence gives mm-hmm. the false notion that it's a place where you can arrive or conquer and you get an A and it's done. Right. Absolutely. That's that's not Uh true. (laughs) It's ongoing work. No. (laughs) 
<laughs> Definitely. And so if you are in a consultation or a first session with a therapist and you find that you can't talk about your culture, your blackness, your racial being, I would say shop for somebody else because yeah. who you are has to show up in the therapy session. Yeah, ab- absolutely. That makes sense. And the other thing that I was wondering is can seeing a therapist that's not culturally competent do more harm than good? I mean, is that possible? (laughs) Uh (laughs) (laughs) Nice straightforward answer. (laughs) Um, As as psychologists, as I'm sure you know, medical professionals, we have an ethical code of do no harm. And I think that Mm -hmm. um, unfortunately, you know, medical professionals, psychologists, we're human too. And so for those of us who have not done the work and exploring our blind spots, uh, have not even considered to look at an article or research about anti-racism and mental health, that can be uh, really disruptive and and triggering uh, in a therapy setting. Yeah. Yeah. No, that that makes total sense. I, I would definitely agree with that. So when you have sort of recognize that you're carrying some generational Mm -hmm. trauma and you've taken some steps, you've gone to therapy, um, maybe you've read some books, tried to process Mm -hmm. and heal. How do you know when you're healed? Like, are there signs or metrics that you can look at to know that you're no longer carrying the weight of the past? Um, I think some general signs for that one are just being aware of how you show up in the world differently. So you might Mm. be able to identify your emotions better. You might be able to allow your emotions to actually exist and tell other people what you need. You might have healthier boundaries. You will likely be less triggered, you know, whether it's walking down the street or driving or walking into a store or being around whatever family member. You might be able to manage emotions Mm -hmm. in a more healthy way Um, you might have also put together some self-care planning um, just to have moments you know to yourself and I would also say just a general more positive attitude about yourself feeling more safe in your body and just overall confidence Mm -hmm. oh I love that those were wonderful pearls because it gives you kind of like a checklist almost. You can say, okay, I've got some of these, but I don't have some of these other ones. So maybe I need to continue sure. my work. So that was really, really valuable. Uh, thanks for absolutely. sharing that. And I think it's important to know that that also can be ongoing work because our needs change. So if you take this pandemic, for example, some people already <laughs> had great coping skills and have worked through their past pain, but the pandemic made it extremely hard to continue. And, you know, you kind of have to work through when things seep back through the cracks. And so it's knowing when mm-hmm. to adjust some of those things. Excellent point. Yeah, because sometimes I feel like you see therapists, you know, some people are in therapy ongoing, but some people see therapists at different points yes. in their life and just kind of doing the check-ins to see, okay, where am I now? And wh- what what do I need uh, is, is a great, a great thing mm-hmm. to do That's as well. Now, I used to do health disparities research when I was at the University mm-hmm. of Maryland. And so as I was learning about generational trauma from what mm-hmm. you've written, it occurred to me that 
carrying the weight of generations of pain can also lead to disparities, whether in your health or in your education. Because just as I was thinking about going to college and when you go to college, if you're worried about is if your parents or your family are going to be okay. If your younger siblings, you got to work an extra job to send money home for your younger siblings. When you carry a lot of this extra weight, it can affect how you even perform in college. Whereas we think, okay, you got in, now the playing field is even. So I was just curious to know your thought about if this does affect disparities and how. I think that it doesn't help. Um, Mm Mm-hmm. I think it's important to think about it's it's to differentiate between it's not about ability or intellect, but it's about those stressors or those weights that you named. And so if you think about the blog post, yep, this kid is brilliant and talented, but because he's distracted, his grades might suffer or he might be targeted, you know, by an advisor and more likely to receive harsher criticism about his presence on Mm -hmm. campus. And then in thinking about just the mental fatigue. And so yeah. what if he is going to start, you know, showing fluctuation and anxiety or depression or even trauma symptoms? What's the likelihood that he will seek help? What's the likelihood that he'll be able to recognize it? And what's the likelihood that he'll be taken seriously mm-hmm. if he does? Right. Absolutely. So you've mentioned anxiety, depression and trauma mm-hmm. symptoms And I just want to, for some of our listeners who may not be aware of what those symptoms are, can you just list what some of the symptoms are of anxiety, depression, and trauma? It's it's funny because they all kind of overlap to some degree. Um, Anxiety Mm -hmm. uh, is a general sense of worry, nervousness, angst, um, tendency to overthink or ruminate. Often people have a Mm -hmm. hard time falling asleep because their minds won't slow down. For Mm -hmm. depression, it can be similar Uh, You might have um, those same worrisome ruminating thoughts, but you might have low energy. You might not really be motivated. You might not be invested in your daily life or your daily upkeep or your daily hygiene. Um, Mm -hmm. And then uh, for trauma, I would say a a little bit of a mix of all of those things in addition to maybe a sense of numbness or hypervigilance. So always watching your surroundings and not trusting people or overreacting to things. That's yeah. a big one. Any little thing okay. that set you off and people think you're angry, but really you're just scared. Right. Right. Oh, great. That That's really, really helpful. So I'm going to shift a little bit uh, because I didn't want to, I didn't want to leave this out. I know that you approach your work from a social justice and an anti-racist mm-hmm. perspective. I just wanted to hear a little bit more about how as a clinical psychologist, you approach your work from, sure. from that perspective. So clinically, um, it alludes back to what I was saying earlier about taking into account the whole person. So when I'm doing mm-hmm. an intake, for example, I'll be really specific about, you know, how does who you are show up in, you know, any of your pain or trauma because of experiences that you've had in the world or... When I ask about, you know, history of trauma symptoms, I'm very specific about asking about um, racial discrimination or racism. Yeah. Yeah. I think a lot of people, you know, we haven't been taught that those count as trauma. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And and some people are caught off guard when I'm asked that question and they have to think about it. I'm like, oh, yeah, that is a valid thing that I that I carry. 
And on the flip side of that, you know, seeing clients who aren't Black, sometimes it is providing education or edu- uh, making aware of their blind spots or for other mm. minorities, sometimes it's internalized racism or internalized anti-Blackness they're not aware of. So it can really vary because as a as humans, yeah. we all experience emotions and insecurities. and but But because of who we are and being in this country under the racism condition it impacts us all in different ways so i think it's it's yeah. very important to be intentional about how that's addressed and then outside of the clinical space i do some leadership and advocacy work and so you know being aware of or trying to stay up with what's going on in terms of the policy world um in the mental health space and for access Okay, you sound like you are <laughs> extremely busy. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> On this show, my goal is to give Black women a platform to use their voices. So when I saw your work on the history of silencing the Black voice and Black women specifically, I got <laughs> kind of excited. Um, can you tell us how Black women have been silenced and what we can do to make sure we that we are have heard? Been silenced in so many ways. I think that we mm. historically, you know, have been treated as the underdog, both racially and our gender. Uh-huh. Right, double whammy. So we're silenced, you know, <laughs> by white violence and abuse and by not being promoted in professional spaces or not being allowed um, in certain communities, classes, jobs, um, discriminated against for our hair, or how we present ourselves, our body types. Mm-hmm. Um, we've been historically viewed as over-sexualized yeah. and undervalued for our voices and for our intellect. Um, less likely to be taken seriously in male-dominated spaces. Um, and of course, one of the biggest ones that many of us are still naming is not arresting the police who killed Breonna Taylor. So it's a deep value yes, in black female yes, life. Yes, yeah. And this is one that I think happens even within the black community. Uh, unfortunately, I think a lot of black women feel Mm-hmm. That they are silenced, N- not by everyone, not by all men, but sure. even some black men tend to silence black women. Yeah, that's a tricky one, too, because yeah. in a lot of ways I have framed that from a perspective of black men, not all, but not having dealt with their trauma. And so it's, mm-hmm. you know, just becomes projected onto onto women. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. And I like that way of sort of framing it and looking at it because, you know, hurt mm-hmm. people hurt people, right? So it makes sense that that would come from a place right. of a place of pain. Um, so what are some of your final thoughts that you would like to share with our listeners regarding Black stress and carrying the weight sure. of generational um, trauma? I think I'll, I'm realizing I didn't incorporate how we can be heard. So I'll add that to this. But I think um, encouraging one another to speak and, our, and our allow ourselves to show up, allow our emotions and our needs to be present in our relationships, in our jobs, um, even in the community. Explore the parts of you that have allowed, that have been muted and make more daily conscious awareness to unmute yourself in whatever way it is. Um, no longer making 
dominant America, white America comfortable and call out problematic behavior, racism, stereotyping, microaggressions. I just mm-hmm. think that we owe it to ourselves and the next generation. Like you gave the beautiful example of how you're raising your children just to put down some of that weight and to just really take inventory of our lives, where we spend our energy, what our relationships look like, how we invest our time and the boundaries that we keep to protect ourselves. Those are some very powerful things to do. And as you were talking about speaking up and calling Mm -hmm. out the microaggressions, Mm -hmm. um, that's scary. It's scary. You know, you risk losing friends, you risk possibly losing a job, you risk losing Mm -hmm. a promotion or whatever it is that might be valuable. So how do you frame that in such a way that the reward is higher than the risk? Um, I think there are two parts to that answer. So the first part is that we often have have a negative connotation about confrontation. Confrontation doesn't Mm. have to be volatile or negative or, uh, you know, punitive necessarily, Um, especially when you deliver whatever it is in a way that, you know, can be, that that lands well, for lack of a better way to. Um, The second part of that is I think that part of our, healing requires us to within reason take a risk um and to value ourselves yeah. and to teach kids mm. and the next you know our baby's coming up yep we have to love ourselves first this is part of our reparations for lack of a better word it's not a- always about the money and the land but it's wow. about our presence our emotional well-being and our being valued Whew. that that that's a lot kind of just gives me chills because it's it's true and it is a way to mm-hmm. reclaim a lot that we have lost and to not pass on generational trauma. Sometimes, you know, it can just even be us being silent and not speaking up because that's, you know, things that are getting pushed down and not expressed. And then that is passed on. So we kind of have to do it for ourselves, but we also have to do it for the right. next generation, like what you said. Yeah. Love that. So this has been an amazing conversation and you have, you have an amazing blog. You're also a speaker. You're a practicing psychologist. You're involved in a lot of different things. So for my listeners who would like to follow your work or maybe schedule an appointment or get in touch with you, what's sure. the best way so for them to do that? My main website um, is smedleypsych.com. It's my last name, psych.com. And then the blog also has my email address. So if you go to Dr. Jess on blackstress.com, that'll give you an email address, a phone number, uh, and that comes directly to me as well. Wonderful. Thank you so much for this interview. And I know you're busy, but I'm hoping that we'll be able to get another interview from you on a different topic at some point. I'll give you, I'll give you a little break. Good. Good. Wonderful. (laughs) I appreciate it. We all appreciate it. But thank you so much. And we will see you next time back here on SOAR. So thank you. 